Hello, and welcome to the Deadline Election Line podcast. I'm Ted Johnson in Washington. I'm Dominic Patton in Los Angeles. On this podcast, we feature interviews with top political and entertainment figures as we spotlight where D.C. meets Hollywood. And of course, going into this 2024 election, D.C. and Hollywood are melded. And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. In just a bit, we'll be talking with CNN anchor Jake Tapper. He's hosting a new docu-series called The United States of Scandal. We'll talk to him about the shifting nature of the political scandal and why the fallout isn't what it once was. But first of all, he's back. Jon Stewart has returned to The Daily Show after almost a decade, missing out on the entire Trump administration and all of the blast radius for that. He had pretty good numbers. Stewart will be hosting the show every Monday up until and probably just after the election, kind of like our election line podcast in our hub. Maybe they stole the idea from us. Maybe they didn't. <laughs> but he had the biggest audience for the show since 2018. This is great. But is Jon Stewart still Jon Stewart in 2024? Welcome to The Daily Show. My name is Jon Stewart. Now... Where was I? Um, I have to say the numbers, uh, it's 1.9 million viewers. Uh, but if you dig down just a little bit, you realize that that's not all on Comedy Central. They actually had to simulcast this across a lot of the uh, Paramount Global Network. So that's how you get to that figures. And I think they threw in streaming there. The actual audience on Comedy Central was... 930,000. But this speaks to, you know, Jon Stewart left cable in 2015. This speaks to how different the landscape is right now. And there was kind of a reference to it during the show and kind of made light of it is, you know, the simple fact that it's just harder to get an audience right now, both on cable and online to make something go viral. That's what really made his show I think back in the um, Bush and Obama years is those clips would get circulated first online, then on social media. But that's so much more difficult right now. Oh, absolutely. But I feel like when I was watching this return earlier this week, this kind of what I'll call his both sidisms, talking about Biden, talking about Trump. There was the age jokes. There was a lot of this. There was a lot of predictability. There wasn't a lot of originality, but the bite to be relevant is very muted because these are not both sidism issues. We're not talking about Mitt Romney and Barack Obama differing on healthcare provisions. We're talking about fundamentally different ideas of what democracy is, what equality is, or as somebody said, Donald Trump, the stump streech, sounds better in the original German. <laughs> and so I think it's very hard for Don Stewart to find a lane that's effective here. I actually thought he did it right. I actually thought there are, are genuine questions, especially after last week, about President Biden's age. And I thought it was very, very humorous when Jon Stewart actually pointed out, hey, you know, they bypassed the Super Bowl interview, but then they did this TikTok thing. How do you go on TikTok and end up looking older? The criticism of Biden was, you know, if he is so with it in private, they should actually get out there and actually show him actually doing that. What was interesting to me, though, is the anger that Jon Stewart so rightly has shown about how 9-11 responders, first responders have been ill-treated, how their health care has not been adequate, et cetera, et cetera, how veterans have been ignored, that passion that he has for it. That seemed to me to not quite be on display on Jon Stewart 2.0. This is the election where clearly no one is sitting on the sidelines. 
he needs to come more off the bleachers and get more into center field. I don't know if it's so much being an observer in 2024, maybe more like playing referee. And that, I think, is where the Daily Show will become vital again. I think you do bring up a good point. The nature of comedy has changed since he signed off back in 2015. It has gotten more hardened. It has become more polarizing. And I think some of the reaction to Jon Stewart, his debut episode is is testament to that. The, you know, people immediately keyed in on, oh, here he's doing the both sidesism. I still thought it was effective, but I think that the response to it, and perhaps even for younger viewers, they are looking for something that's more pointed. Yeah, and there is a fine line in the echo chamber approach in American politics. To that point, we are very glad to welcome our guest for today, which, of course, many of you know from CNN. He's the anchor of the lead. He takes charge and leads their election coverage night after night, year after year. And Jake Tapper has got a new documentary series debuting on February 18th on Sunday on CNN called The United States of Scandal. It looks at some of the most bombastic and sensational scandals of the political 21st century. He sits down with all the players, all of them infamous. And today, Jake sits down with Ted and I to talk about the United States of Scandal. We're here to get your side of the story. Where are the weapons of mass destruction? How do you view your time as governor? I had 2,896 days in prison to ask myself a thousand questions, including that. Looking back, I can't help but feel that we were all so quick to embrace the headline that we may have forgotten to dig a little deeper. They say, get on the phone, find some pigs. Wait, what? You can't write this stuff. Jake, thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. First off, the first episode focuses on former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, uh, who went to prison after he was found guilty of trying to sell Barack Obama's vacant Senate seat. What was the challenge of interviewing someone who, as your colleague Anderson Cooper said, operates in an alternate universe of facts? Well, of all the individuals, so we did six scandals for the series. And um, one of them is about the leaking of Valerie Plame's name and weapons of mass destruction. So that's kind of a, a more serious one. The others are more personal failings. And of the five personal failings, Blagojevich was the least repentant. He thinks he did nothing wrong. Uh, hold on, Jake. I have to interrupt you. Least repentant is a very polite way of saying not really repentant at all. No, he's not repentant at all. He doesn't think he did anything wrong. He doesn't think he did anything wrong at all. So the challenge there was to let him tell his story while also uh, making sure that the viewers were aware of the facts behind it all. And, you know, he does have an argument to make. I'm not saying I agree with it, but his basic argument is that our essential uh, campaign finance system is corrupt, where you need to raise money. And therefore, you are always in the position of doing favors for people giving you money. He's not wrong about that. No. Uh, but his uh, blat blatant crossing of the lines is where he got into trouble. You know, one of the things I found interesting about when you talk to, 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 to Rod is, you know, he comes in without trying to put this too, too bluntly. A long line of Illinois governors who've gotten themselves in scandals and trouble over the years. Sure. But. The history of scandals in the United States is as long and deep as the Constitution and the founders themselves, Jake. So yeah. in a way, are these anomalies or is this actually part of our body politic? They are not anomalies. They are part of our body politic because our politicians are people. 
and they are often people with huge egos and hubris, uh, dating all the way back to uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, and his affair. Uh, and I don't think it's new, um, the fact that we have politicians who engage in scandal. But what I wanted to do with this series was go back and see some of the more recent ones where the players are still alive, still willing to tell their stories and learn things that we didn't learn at the time, because the, the way we cover them is, you know, we, we are writing the first draft of history. So we're covering the drips and drabs and what happens day to day to day to day. Often the people are not talking to the press, whether Riel Hunter, John Edwards' girlfriend, or Jim McGreevy, or all the others that we, that we focus on in these series. And I, I wanted to go back and talk to them, look at the entire scandal you know, with the distance and with the wisdom of that distance. And also, you know, we have to be honest here, in the post-Trump era, we're now in a different time when it comes to scandal, and there's a different playbook in many ways. I was just wondering, you know, do you think that the public is increasingly desensitized to scandal now that a lot of these political figures don't have to pay the same price? I think so. Um, there's uh, a desensitization to it, although there are still lines. I mean, look at what happened with George Santos. There is a you know Republican congressman who was a serial prevaricator. He thought he could just you know follow the Trump line of just deny he did anything wrong, just hang in there, attack the media, and survive. Uh, and ultimately, he was not able to do so. So I don't think that we're so desensitized that there are no standards. Um, and even Donald Trump, you know, wasn't reelected. Uh, so uh, I don't know that you can say he, he's faced no accountability. Not that you said it, but that people say that he's faced no accountability. He's being tried right now for a number of these scandals in courts. Now, given that we have had scandals that have involved the loss of life, uh, whether it is, you know, what the insurrection on January uh, 6th, or COVID, or weapons of mass destruction, I, I certainly think that, you know, some of the scandals that involve just personal failings are not as consequential and serious as some of the other ones. It's interesting you say that, because I see it as the other way around. I see it as that we actually center more nowadays on the personal failings. I think a lot of people see George Santos for being a liar, to use an example, they center more on that than the campaign finance irregularities, which actually really had a lot to do with him being forced out of Congress. You know, I remember if you, people like my grandmother would always assume that all politicians were corrupt. And we would look, you know, you, and you'd look at scandals as far back as uh, the teapot scandal from the Harding administration and what have you. Do you think that because of the, the, the way we live, the society we live in, the social media environments that we're in, that the explicitness of the personal failings, and I some of this because you talk about this a lot in, in United States of Scandal, which, by the way, I should mention again, debuts this weekend on CNN. You know, is that where the emphasis is? Or do you think that the policy scandals are the ones that really linger and have meaning? I think the policy scandals and the campaign finance scandals, uh, and certainly the ones that involve loss of life, as with COVID, as with weapons of mass destruction, as with the January 6th, uh, are more consequential and have more meaning. That's not to say they get as much attention. And one of the reasons for that is that a lot of times, look, if Shakespeare were alive today, uh, he would be writing the story of Rod Blagojevich. He would be writing the story of Elliot Spitzer. Um, you know, these are stories about grand human failings. 
and I think for that reason, they are A, very understandable, and B, there's a salacious enjoyment that people have about it. Um, when somebody, it turns out, is not a perfect family man like John Edwards or Mark Sanford. Someone is not uh, this crusader for justice as Elliot Spitzer portrayed himself to be, and then turned out he was, in many ways, just a garden variety criminal when it came to um, hiring prostitutes. So I, I think that there is, for want of a better word, an enjoyment to the personal failings that people have when when watching the scandals um, because they are like Shakespearean tragedies. And for that reason, people, you know, come to the town square and watch. One thing that uh, Blagojevich tells you is he says, I never said I wasn't a fucking idiot. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so many of these scandals often leave people wondering, why were they so stupid? Is there a through line? Is it that people, they get so enmeshed in their situations that they don't see clearly? I think, I've, I've had this uh, theory of leadership now for some time uh, called the Jar Jar Binks theory, which is that- Oh my God, this is so going to go to a bad place. The powerful, powerful people rise to a level where they can remove from their inner circle anyone telling them something that they don't want to hear. Like, don't put that Jamaican frog in your Star Wars prequels. Now, <laughs> Jar Jar Binks is not a scandal, and those movies made billions of dollars. So, the, you know, the, 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 the term I've come up for it is wanting in some ways, but the idea that a John Edwards or a Mark Sanford or an Elliot Spitzer have removed from their inner circle anyone that could say, what are you doing? That's a bad idea. Or that Rod Blagojevich, if he ever had anyone around him that had any sort of ethical compass ha had been shunned away at that point, And he had surrounded himself with shady characters who were willing to shake down individuals who were pursuing state contracts to give him money or to give him deals. And I think removing from your inner circle, those people is, is almost always a mark of bad things are to come. And you can see it, whether it is Brian Williams uh, you know, moving out of his orbit, executive producers who were saying, stop telling those stories, they're not true, uh, or others. Um, and I think every one of these guys uh, is a victim of the Jar Jar Binks theory. Uh, they just didn't have anyone around them that they, that they would listen to that would say, don't do that. know this side of you. We see you every day on the lead. We see you breaking news election coverage. Of course, you are a best-selling author. All the Demons Are Here being the latest book that you've had. This is long form. What are the challenges that that presents for you doing something that's more long form like this? And what were the choices that went into the people you decided to profile here as opposed to others? And say, I'll give you an example just for one. We almost forget it now, but the 1996 Chinese campaign money scandal surrounding the Clintons and the re-election campaign. I remember Bob Dole pounding podium saying, what about the outrage? What about the outrage? The outrage. Nobody remembers that now. It's, a, it's over, right? Yeah. Why did you choose these ones? And again, to come back to the challenge of long form for someone like you. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, thank you for the kind words. The truth is I, I enjoy dabbling in all sorts of media, whether it is fiction, whether it's nonfiction, whether it's long form, whether it's short form. For long form, as somebody who's metabolistically a journalist and likes to have something that I produce 
shown, published, or aired as soon as possible, the idea of waiting and waiting and waiting is difficult for me. So that's that's a challenge. Uh, and then also just the storytelling is one that, you know, we were trying to come up with creative ways to do it. Like we did stand-ups where they portrayed it as if I were standing in the Mayflower Hotel bar where Scooter Libby had just told Judith Miller Valerie Plame's identity. Or I was standing uh, at a John Edwards rally and that sort of thing. And obviously I'm not there, but getting comfortable with production elements like that was something for me journalistically was stepping outside of my comfort zone a little bit because it's it's not blurring the world of fiction and nonfiction, but it is experimenting with a broadcasting device that I normally wouldn't do. Um, in terms of why we picked these exact stories, a lot of it was booking dependent, to be completely honest, you know, getting Riel Hunter, Valerie Plame, Jim McGreevy, getting Mark Sanford's top aide, getting Elliot Spitzer's top aide slash mentor. I mean, the, they were very booking dependent. We looked at other scandals that we you know, thought about doing. I really wanted to do Ab Scam, which was obviously the subject of the movie American Hustle. Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah, American Hustle. American Hustle. But the guy I wanted to interview, Ozzie Myers, who was the former congressman, who was my congressman at the time in Philly, uh, who, uh, who went to jail for Ab Scam, I believe. In any case, he went to jail again <laughs> for a different <laughs> scandal, so we couldn't interview him. Oh my so, God, I love that. <laughs> yeah, Man. so he was fixing a local judicial election, allegedly, or maybe he was, or, or I guess oh he was. So anyway, we couldn't interview him. So then we just kind of ended up with these stories. And then there were other ones that we were playing with. We didn't want to do Trump or Bill Clinton slash, you know, impeachments because we felt like those had been covered so much. We wanted to do stories that people might have heard about, maybe remembered, but like, would be interested in finding out more. And and again, like I said, they were very, it was booking dependent. So, you know, if there's a season two of this, there's no shortage of scandals. The Chinese, it's certainly interesting. That's an interesting one to think about because it's a Bill Clinton one, but it's not one that people remember. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's no shortage of season two possibilities. So let me ask that in terms of a second season, very much with these ones, you stayed very 21st century. Would you widen the aperture? for a second season if you were to do one at the United States of Scandal? Sure, sure. I think it is interesting hearing from the players. So there's so much I would want to do a Teapot Dome scandal or the XYZ affair. But I would definitely go back and do Abscam if, when Ozzie Myers gets out of prison. <laughs> and, I, you know, and also, we don't have to only do politics. I mean, you guys know there are huge Hollywood scandals that are interesting and complicated and compelling. There's uh, all sorts of corporate scandals. You could do Enron. You could do Arthur Anderson. There's so many um, ones you could do that would be good. And and like, look, for a lot of those other ones, the whistleblowers are still alive and they're ready to tell their stories. One thing that really struck me is uh, John Edwards. Uh, yeah. You did not talk to John Edwards. No, he's not. He doesn't talk to anybody. He hasn't. He has not given an interview since that weird interview where... I think it was with Bob Woodruff of ABC News, and I believe that he admitted to having had an affair with Real Hunter, but he denied that the kid was his. He's the exception, though. I mean, the, these other figures, they've all tried some form of public rehabilitation. 100%. What yeah. drives yeah. them to want to be back in the spotlight again? Well, I assume, A, that you know they feel like they have something to contribute, B, 
ego and C, they don't want the scandal to be their obituary headline. You know, Elliot Spitzer had a show on CNN. Yes, that's right. After his scandal. It didn't last very long. But I get this. I get this when these guys do this because this worked for Nixon. Sure. In the end, Nixon had a funeral attended by all the presidents, the world. I mean, look, more recently, it worked for Henry Kissinger. I believe in America, if you say sorry enough times, you will be forgiven. Bill Clinton's career being the best example I can use there. Yeah. Jake, we really appreciate having you on with us today. Just very quickly, we want to talk a little bit about your blurring of fact and fiction with your books. You obviously have some Hollywood deals here. What are you thinking next? Are you going to do more in the uh, along with the storylines that you've done in the last three books? Or are you looking at something new? Well, right now, we're, we're trying to turn the second book, The Devil May Dance, the one that takes place in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, into its streamer series. And Christian Slater wants to play Charlie. And we're working on that. So watch the space for more information on that. But then I think my next book will probably be nonfiction. Uh, I'm, there's a really interesting story I stumbled onto about a terrorist that the Italians picked up. And then the Americans had like a limited amount of time to build a case against him before he would be released into Europe and kill um, thousands of people. So it's kind of like a, a reverse detective story where they have the bad guy and they have to go back and f- prove that he did things wrong. And with this clock ticking the whole time, this fascinating story and it's real. Um, and I think I'm going to write that next. Before we go, we always ask our guests one final question. Who is your favorite fictional president? I forget his name, but uh, I really like the Bill Pullman character in Independence Day. You know, he was a veteran, Gulf War veteran. President Whitmore. Nice. President Whitmore. I like President Whitmore. I also like the Harrison Ford in Air Force One. Those are two tough, appealing presidents, family guys. Yeah. Great. Jake, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, guys. Good to see both of you. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Get off my plane. President Joe Biden will be back in Los Angeles next week for another round of fundraising. In his last swing out west, he raised $15 million via number of events. This time he'll be raising money in an event hosted by two longtime political bundlers, Haim Saban and Casey Wasserman. Now, the president, of course, is no stranger to Hollywood, but this is a very different environment the president's now coming into. After the release of the special counsel's report, looking at him where they referred to him as a well-meaning elderly man with not a great memory, there are a lot of concerns, and we're hearing them, a lot of concerns out here in Hollywood, too, about the president. This is going to be a hard one for him. People are going to have real questions, and I think most importantly, donors are going to be watching very carefully. Another thing that I think donors have been looking for is him to take on Donald Trump more aggressively, which he has been doing in the last couple of months. Another th- important thing I think to note is Haim Saban is very well known for his support for Israel. So I think it's telling that Biden's been a little more critical of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in recent weeks. So I think that this is telling that Haim Saban has stepped up and and is co-hosting this event. You know, I hasten to say this gives Biden a little more leeway, especially as he's been facing, actually in visits to Los Angeles, facing protests from pro-Palestinian demonstrators. Uh, That certainly was the case when he visited in December. You know, Democrats come out to Hollywood like it's an ATM and they, they take out the cash. 
you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg has talked about, who's the co-chair of Biden's finance committee, has talked about that the president needs to lean into his age. But it is looking rough out there. And especially when people look around and they see people like California's own Gavin Newsom, they see Gretchen Whitmore in Michigan. The president needs to get some knockout punches in there, and he doesn't seem to be landing them right now. I don't think he's going to have any trouble raising money. But I think kind of the question is, as we get closer to the election, is it not just donors? Is it more people in the entertainment community stepping up, talking about Joe Biden on social media, going out and campaigning for him as they were back in 2020 to really kind of have this aura of enthusiasm around the campaign that we're just not seeing yet. And also, too, as we're moving towards the end of February, we're moving towards some major primaries. I mean, look, right now, it's pretty clear this is Biden versus Trump 2.0. Ted, do you feel like, as we wrap it up for today, I'm asking you, do you feel like the enthusiasm can be maintained? I mean, there's very little drama in the ballot box, a lot of drama off the ballot box with Trump and his various trials, with Biden and the investigation of Hunter. Of course, there's the war. Now there's the aid packages to Ukraine and, and Israel, et cetera, et cetera, and the battles with Congress. But there doesn't seem much drama out on the campaign trail. One thing I tell everyone, you know, everyone who says, oh, you know, this looks like such a depressing race. It's Biden versus Trump again. I tell everyone who asks for a prediction or something, I say, there will be something very, very unexpected that happens during this campaign that is going to change the dynamics because we saw it in 2020, we saw it in 2016. It just seems to be in the air. So Ted saying the words Taylor Swift without saying the words Taylor Swift, I think there. Okay. <laughs> we almost made it through the whole podcast without mentioning Taylor Swift. Almost. The, uh, the great October surprise. You need to just Thank you so much for joining us on the Deadline Election Line podcast. You, of course, can listen to our podcast on all major podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Music, etc., etc. I'm Dominic Patton in Los Angeles. I'm Ted Johnson in Washington. Talk to you soon. Deadline.